I'm Jenny Rerick. I'm Jay Weedle. And you're listening to the Fit to Speak podcast. A show dedicated to giving coaches and trainers practical tips on how to communicate what they know in a way other people understand. I am super excited to be recording with Shelby Miller is here with me today. Shelby and I met online. Yeah, we're online friends. We are online friends. You, Shelby, you're my second online friend, except I've now met my first one. And so now I have to find a way to come and meet you too. Yeah, we definitely got to hook up sometime. Yeah. Shelby helped me out a couple of months ago. I was putting together a workshop for some athletic trainers and physical therapists. And you and I spoke and you gave me some helpful advice in terms of setting up some scenarios and we've kept in touch and you're very kindly joining me today to give us some insight on communications role within what you do, which is physical therapy. So for me, and then for everyone else who's listening, can you just tell us who you are and what you do? Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm pumped to do this. Um, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. And so knew in eighth grade that I wanted to be a physical therapist. I broke my thumb, like playing softball. I was trying to like lay down a bunt and didn't have my thumb behind the bat enough. So I just got jammed by the ball, broke my thumb and ended up in a PT clinic where there was PTs and OTs. And I was there to get a split made for my thumb. And that was kind of my first like exposure to the to the career, to the opportunity to like be in a clinic with people, be involved in sports, but on the rehab side of things. And I really found that a really interesting and something that I became really passionate about and something that I felt like would really intersect, um, passion for people, passion for sports. And then obviously I would make money doing that. And so went through high school, became like a tech at a local clinic in college, uh, studied to, to be a PT through like the kinesiology program at Texas A&M did some like shadowing, um, at other clinics and then applied for PT school and got into PT school. The only one I got into, I was waitlisted and then got the call in April of 2015, um, that I got in. And so started fall of 20, 2015 PT school out in West Texas at Hardin Simmons university and graduated at the end of 2017. And then I got hired on by the clinic that I did my last clinical at. So as a student, you go on different clinicals, right? You have to do like a hospital rotation and get comfortable in like acute care. Um, you have to do like a neuro rotation and get comfortable treating people that have either had like spinal cord injury or brain injury, um, stroke, those kinds of things. Um, and then your other three were kind of like whatever your interest was. And so I did all of mine in um, orthopedic and sports. And so two of mine were the more like orthopedic clinicals, a little more general, but my last one, my 14 week one was like very sports heavy in a clinic that I now work for in Fort Worth. Okay. So got hired on by them really since then have just pursued becoming more of a specialist in the sports realm, um, work at a clinic where I get to help mentor like new grads, um, students. We work alongside some amazing athletic trainers and we used to work with strength coaches, but they have since kind of relocated. Um, and then also our doctors and PAs. So very interdisciplinary, um, setup where I'm at. Um, so yeah, spend 40 hours a week treating, um, mostly high school kids and young adults and getting them back to sport after injuries or, or pain flare ups. It's pretty crazy to hear how long this has been in your life. <laughs> I know. I don't, I, I don't think I, I mean, it's so rare to hear anybody say that. What did you say? Eighth grade? Yeah. 
That's really cool. I know it is. I'm definitely rare. I, I have a lot of compassion for my friends that, well, not my friends currently, but my high school friends and college friends that are now, you know, at my clinic of just like, I don't know what I want to do. I'm like, that's so normal. Like, yeah, most people don't know what they want to do. So that's okay. Somehow I knew what I wanted to do in eighth grade and never really looked back. So I'm thankful for that, but I know that it's not everyone's story. So, yeah. When you were talking about the rotations that you do as a part mm -hmm. of that PT program, I'm assuming is that typical for all PT programs? Yep. Yeah. All programs, you have to get a certain amount of hours in certain settings um, to graduate. Okay. And then once in the, what's the point of doing that just to give you exposure to the options that are available to you once you graduate, or are they trying to specifically funnel you into certain areas? I wish they would funnel us into particular areas. Cause that would save them, I think some time and money. So I, I wish PT school was like, Hey, if you already know you want to go into sports, let's cut you down by six months and get you out of here. Right. Mm -hmm. But no, it's for a few things. You have to be competent in a lot of skills. You have to get mm -hmm. a check off basically across all settings. So I had to get checked off that I could transfer someone that was in a wheelchair to like a bed, right? Those kinds of things. Um, okay. So it's just to make sure that you are a well-rounded generalist. And then if you don't know what you want to do as a PT, that's pretty common coming into school. Like you're like, I don't really know what setting I want to be in. It also gives you the opportunity to figure out what I'm yeah. interested in. What am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? For the right. people that come in that really kind of know what they want to do, some of the other rotations, um, I think can be helpful for just learning other skills. So like mm -hmm. learning how to communicate, learning just kind of that continuum of rehab from like being in the hospital, being really, really sick to being really, really well and performing at a high level. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's really what comes to mind for me from a more of the strength coach background is how beneficial that would be for strength coaches to not in the realm of obviously PT, but even exploring all the opportunities within strength coaching and the, the avenues that you can pursue. I mean, you're paying to go to school to do that. And part of that is that rotation program, but even for someone who's not sure of what they want to do, finding a way to on your own, explore options by doing or setting up some type of rotational program for yourself. Because for sure. I know a lot of, a lot of people would be willing to bring someone in for a couple of weeks just to shadow because mm -hmm. in the strength world correct me if I'm wrong but it's a lot of like you find your own internships and if you kind of get uh funneled into like a particular kind of track like that's just kind of the path that you go unless you really seek out a variety of yeah. settings is that yeah. correct yeah and yeah. well and obviously there's no licensure so <laughs> the a little more yeah it's less obvious so much less rigorous but they would there would be so much value for any professional I mean really in any field to do that for a couple of months even did when you were in those rotations how how organized were they in incorporating you into the work that they were doing like were they mm -hmm. act actively teaching you or are you is it designed where you have to pick up what you're going to learn yeah that's a great question. In a perfect ideal world, the job of your, it's called the clinical instructor. So basically like if I was your student and you were my clinical instructor in a perfect PT world, like your job would be to mentor me, right? So those first few weeks, you're trying to get me up to speed on your kind of caseload, like what patients are you seeing so that I can start to help take over for those patients. And that'd be like a smooth transition, but then also your job would be to challenge my thought process and my critical thinking, clinical reasoning. Now, that's not the case everywhere. So my last rotation, 
um, was amazing. They did a great job. It was the best mentorship experience that I had. There's other rotations where just either they're not as motivated to, to give you that much energy. So they just like, can't cause they're 20 years into their career and they just don't care. And they're kind of doing this cause they're obligated to take a student. Um, or like they're in a setting that this kind of draining to them. And so they don't, they're not really passionate about it. So it doesn't really come through in their teaching. It's just yeah. kind of like, yeah, we just do this because of this. And that's kind of it. So for the most part, you are getting mentored and kind of being a little bit, you have a little bit of a handhold mm-hmm. going into things. And then that handhold kind of gets released towards the okay. end of your time with them. Okay. Some gentle guidance, some gentle guidance. Yes. Don't we love it? <laughs> when you're in the, before you did the rotations, do you receive any formal education on communication skills or just general interactions with clients in PT school? Yeah. Gosh, this made me think, cause I was like, um, hmm, I haven't been in PT school in a while. I don't remember. So I went back and actually looked at my curriculum. Cause I was like, did we have a, like a real course on this? Cause I remember what I remember is essentially there'd be moments where they would present a case to us and we'd have to either like role play and like explain like, okay, Jenny, I, you know, heard this in your, you're basically what we call your subjective, like your interview or your story essentially. Right. And then this is what I'm seeing on my objective exam. And so here's what I think is going on. And here's kind of the game plan. Those are kind of the four pieces of what we do. Um, and so that was a part of PT school was just trying to get reps doing that. And then there was also a class, I think if I remember correctly, where it was kind of like how to just navigate, like hard conversations with people. Right. Mm -hmm. So if there's like psychosocial stuff going on, like when do we need to refer out to counseling? When do we need to refer out to a RD? When do we need to refer out uh, back to the PCP to make sure that, um, that we're not missing anything. Right. So I don't know that we had an actual course, but there was some stuff sprinkled in. And then the other thing that came to mind was before we went on, we went on like a family trip or like a family, family camp, not trip. We worked a family camp. So we were working with families that had kids that had disabilities. And our job was to come alongside the family, be with them for the week, be with their kids for the week. And then the second week of this whole like trip that we were going on as a class was to Haiti. We were doing a medical mission trip with an organization called Johnny and Friends. And so Johnny Erickson Tata has like wrote a few books on suffering. Long time ago, she dove, sustained a spinal cord injury, has been in a wheelchair um, since she was like, I don't know, 17 or something. So okay. Our school, I think being a, they were like a private Christian school. So the lens that they were viewing a lot of this through is like, how can we equip our students to engage with people that are suffering Yeah. so that they're not just blindsided going into this, which I appreciate. Yeah. So we took like a theology of suffering, like weekend course. I don't remember much about it. I remember at the time it was helpful. Just, it gave me some like words and language to figure out, um, what I was witnessing in the coming weeks. So I would say those few things are a few things that come to mind. Yeah. Even when I'm listening to you talk about that. The suffering thing is really interesting. And Mm -hmm. I can imagine that would be just to embody that type of education would be really beneficial because I mean, really everyone that we're interacting with is suffering in some way. Exactly. And then when I ask about communication skills, I think the one thing that I continually learn is often when we think about communication right away, we go to what we're saying but listening is also a form of communication. And I think listening above everything else is probably the most impactful type of communication you can do 
in in your field and then in other mm-hmm. fields who help people feel yes. better, move better. So if you were going to either build on or adjust the education you got or the experiences you had that you th- you think helped at least kickstart developing the communication skills you use now in your job, what are some of the specific communication skills that you would want to learn or that you would want other PTs to learn? Yeah, I think, man, I feel like this could just be, this like needs to be a whole course in PT school or at least like a requirement for people to have to like consider. But whenever I graduated at the end of 2017, that very next fall, so in 2018, um, there's a kind of this beta group of this mentorship going on that I joined called the level up initiative. And the heartbeat behind it was these clinicians that were like, Hey, PTs are really well equipped with some of the hard skills. Like we know how to like do a clinical exam and like, we know how to like do the, the medical stuff. But as far as like not interrupting patients, as far as like actually hearing what they're saying, as far as like validating what they're coming in for, and then being able to communicate that with, with clarity and, in terms that patients can understand that was just lacking. And so the heartbeat of this mentorship, um, was to equip students to grow in things like communication, um, in growth mindset, and then like critical thinking. And then they've since added a, um, like exercise module. So this is now kind of under something called Calu. If you're interested, go to their Facebook page. They have a lot of stuff there, a lot of good mentorship. Um, is Calu like the name free. of the organization or the group? It is now. So Level Up teamed up with another organization called Clinical Athlete, which was um, a lot of like strength coaches. And I've heard of Clinical PTs, Athlete. Yeah. Amazing. Quinn Hennock spearheaded it a few years ago. But the heartbeat behind that was to connect weightlifters with coaches around the country. And then healthcare providers kind of got um, thrown in the mix as well. So those two companies have kind of become a merger where they offer like an annual continuing education like weekend they do like a year long, like mentorship called Cali plus. So there's a lot of kind of pieces to their ecosystem. So if I was to communicate, create a communication course, I mean, this is what it would be, right. Is teaching students, how do you communicate with patients with like uncertainty and still remain confident? Cause those two can get lost. You can either be really overconfident mm-hmm. and have no idea what you're doing, which is dangerous. Or you can be so honest with your uncertainty that people don't trust you, which is also not ideal. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot of skill to like communicating between you and another PT, you and a doctor, you and an athletic trainer, you and a strength coach. And so if y'all are not on the same page or you think the athlete needs different forms of care and y'all disagree, like, how do you manage that um, respectfully and tactfully? And then the other two would just be like growth mindset. So not getting you know, like run over by your failures. Cause they're going to happen when you're a student, new grad, you're just going to fall on your face mm-hmm. frequently. That's with any job, right? Like mm-hmm. you have to welcome your failures and just look at it as opportunities to grow and, and, and learn and not get too caught up in that. So that's a pillar that, that they hit on that. I think is super important because I just see too many students come in and they just think that they have to have it together all the yeah. time. Yeah. They don't give themselves any permission to like fail safely. And then the third piece of that would be critical thinking. So just learning like what questions do I need to be asking as I'm listening to a patient, as I'm thinking about this particular topic and reading a research paper, like, what does that mean? Cause papers for us is also a form of communication between providers, right? Mm-hmm. 
So those would be a few things that that I would start with. That sounds pretty comprehensive. It is bit. very comprehensive. It's just the best. It changed. It really did, Jenny. It changed how I do my like initial consults. Yeah. When I, as I'm listening to you, I read something I'm reading. I was reading a, a few weeks ago, a, a book on emotional intelligence. And in the book, it talked Ooh. about this idea that at some point in your life, you're going to get the experiences that will teach you these skills, but why would you wait for those experiences to happen when you can seek out mentors mm. or people or or just groups or networks that will create those experiences before you would have had them naturally so you can get the skills and right. then use the skills over a longer period of time. And when you talk about this level up initiative or this mentorship, that's what I think of is it allows PTs or anyone who can participate in this mentorship to create or to get access to experiences that they might not get access to for years, but they gain the skills from that experience that now they can use for much longer than they would have otherwise. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a proactive approach mm -hmm. to right the problem of poor communication in healthcare. Yeah. And it has to be it, it really has to be experience-based or coming from someone who's already had that experience and they can share it because even I I read a lot of just text on communication mm -hmm. and every time I read it, it's everything always sounds so good in theory. And then you think this is not how it, it's going to be applied when someone's in front of you. And they, and a lot of communication books give recommended tactics for what to say. And then you imagine yourself saying it and you think that's, I could never say it right, like that's that. That's not how I would do that. No. So how I do you navigate so that? Much, well, I think it's more so looking at what's the insight or what's mm. the motivation driving communicating in this way. And then what would, how could I say this where it would sound like me? Mm, yeah. I think that's important because I think a lot even what a lot of what I teach, the idea I'm trying to get across is I don't want you to be a carbon copy of what I'm telling you to do. I want to talk about what's the insight driving behind why we want to communicate it in this way and then find a way for that to sound like you. Mm. Yeah. I think to another to build on that. I think so many of us are so worried about sounding like a professional when we communicate. But what I find is often trying to sound professional often makes you a really terrible communicator because we use really big, fancy words that people don't understand. Mm. We become a little stiff yeah. and lose our personality. And we'll, we'll build on this later, but I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and there's so much, there's so much that comes or so much rapport and trust can be built from people really getting the feeling that you're being authentic and that yeah. you're being yourself. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, like if we are going to work with people for your job, like you, you have to just be like normal, right? Like mm -hmm. it's going to one exhaust you to try to be something you're not, you know, and like, I would be curious to know your thoughts on the idea of like professionalism, like in, in your sphere. Cause I know in ours, like you know, it's like khaki pants and you're carrying around your goni, like, which is like what we used to like measure, like range of motion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have our like business attire on and it's like, athletes don't like, we should look like we're coaches. Like I, 
I am thankful that I get to wear like my athleisure to work because mm-hmm. I can like show them how to do a box jump without getting a blister in my flats. Like I get to wear tennis shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so even the way that our like attire speaks to our clientele, I think goes a long way. Um, and then, yeah, I just think like the language that we use with people like matters, like they can, they can tell if you're not speaking like yourself or, yes. and so yeah, hundred percent agree there. Yeah. The attire, I think it's the same as communication is that it's dependent on who your audience is because you're right. Mm -hmm. If you're working with an athlete coming in in khaki pants and a polo doesn't communicate with an athlete, but if you're working with someone who's an adult and they're, they got injured on a weekend ski trip and they come in, they're more so I think looking for that. The attire I think is more indicative to them of competence yeah. As for fair. the younger population, I don't think that's true. And I think the more, the more we can do to relate to the people we're working with when, when we have control of that, the better. But even yeah. if, if I'm forced to wear khakis and a polo and I'm interacting with high school kids, and I know that that's not going to relate to them, then I need to go above and beyond to relate to them. And the way I hold myself, the language mm-hmm. I choose to use the tone I'm speaking to them in where it's maybe more friendly and fun. Yeah, for sure. So they can pick up on that. And that's, that's how like therapeutic alliance is built, right? Is contextually, like they pick up on how's the lighting, how's the music, how like all Mm -hmm. those things play such a big role into people's engagement with Mm -hmm. physical activity, I think. Yeah. Earlier this year, I spoke at the University of Arkansas, they held a training, a symposium for athletic trainers, and there were some PTs there. And during that trip, I did a separate little workshop with their graduate students, the AT graduate students on crucial conversations. Mm. And it was really eye-opening because what I learned in doing that workshop is that these students, they were having a lot of really difficult conversations on a daily basis with players, collegiate players. And when I say difficult, um, some of the examples they gave me were career-ending injuries, telling yeah. a female athlete that she's pregnant or that, Man. I mean, that, yeah, it's like, I mean, and these are graduate students and this is what they're going to be doing in their careers, but they also, so many of them felt so under-skilled and yeah. being able to handle these things and the sim- the their experience felt very similar to what you were describing about your rotation programs where some of them were getting a lot of great guidance and others were not so i'm curious for you now that you've been in the field for quite a while what are some of the things that you've learned or approaches that you take when you need to share bad news or have difficult conversations whether it's with a client a parent or maybe even a coach mm. Yeah. I, I think in, in our setting, you know, so I think for people listening that maybe don't understand kind of the, maybe the differences of, of MD, AT, PT, I think that can be helpful to kind of delineate what kind of bad news we're all sharing. Cause we all have to, but it's all a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So like in our setting, right. Athletes, if they pivoted and felt a pop in their knee on a Friday night and they go get an MRI the next week, um, like the, the MD is going to be the one to share with them. Like, Hey, like you tore your ACL. Now the athletic trainer that's taking care of them and does their exam on that Friday night might say like, if it's their athlete, they might say, Hey, 
I think you might've, you know, I think you might've torn your ACL. I, I do want to send you off to the doc and make sure that, that we kind of know one way or the other. Now, if it's an athletic trainer that's covering an event and it's the opposing team's athlete that goes down and, and the athletic trainer's concerned that they tore their ACL, my AT friends have told me like, if it's not my kid on my team, I won't disclose that information. I'll just say, Hey, I'm going to talk to your, your athletic trainer back at your school and we'll get you taken care of. But for the game, you're going to sit out and we'll ice you up and, and we'll go from there. Okay. So I think that's something that I didn't realize that like, Oh, like that's something that I don't know that I would have been cognizant of yeah. probably would have just said, I'm concerned that you tore your ACL. Right. Is there, is that a liability thing or is it just, I don't know that's a liability as much as it's like, you don't yeah. have a relationship with the kid. So yeah. if you're wrong, one that looks kind of bad on you Two, if you're right, you know, the athletic trainer that actually takes care of that kid yeah. might, might be upset that you, um, okay. you chose to do that. So, mm-hmm. and then as a PT, you know, if I see an MRI report of someone that I'm working with and I'm like, Ooh, they did retear their ACL, but they don't know that yet. And they have a follow-up appointment with their doctor later that week. Even if I see that person, I am not telling them that they retore their ACL. Okay. <laughs> you know, in PT, we're not going to tell someone like, you retore your ACL. Okay. You know, we'll just be like, yeah, we don't have the report. I'll just lie. I'll just be like, I don't know. I Is don't that know. a liability thing? It's not necessarily a liability, but again, it's from, it's okay. We're good. It's like a, from a, from the standpoint that the athlete doesn't know. And I don't know like the game plan moving forward for the athlete. So okay. I don't want to overstep my bounds with the doctor if they have like something in mind with like, okay, they retour, here's the next steps. Like, I don't even want to have to enter that conversation. So got it. as far as bad news that we will share on a PT side of things, a lot of it is going to be coming down to like testing that we do to see if they're ready to start running, um, start getting back into practice and then final clearance back to sport. So I'd say probably some of the hardest news that we have to share is those kids that are, you know, eight, nine months into ACL rehab. They're about to be cleared medically by the by the doctor to go back to sport mm-hmm. pending passing of all of our testing and they go through all the testing and they're just not ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so having to sit down with the athlete and maybe the parent, if they're there and say, Hey, look, here's what you did well on. Here's what you did not do well on, or here's what we still need to work on. You know, we're going to have to push this out another six weeks. And so that can be like a hard conversation, but I think something that we do well, um, at least in our clinic and a lot of good sports PTs, I think also do this is setting that expectation at the beginning, right? So day one after post-op, maybe not day one, maybe like week one, month one, we'll have these conversations of, hey, you're going to be here for nine months. You will go back to sport when you pass X, Y, and Z. So they are not surprised if they don't pass those things that they can't go back to sport. It's just still hard, still sucks. And then from a coaching standpoint, we usually just write a note that says, hey, I've been working with so-and-so. Here's what they're allowed to do. Here's what they're not allowed to do you know, if you have questions, feel free to reach out. So I think that's some of the difference there. And then the other thing that I was thinking about from an imaging standpoint is just warning people what they could find on a report. So if you came to me and you were like, Hey, like I have, you know, low back pain, I'm about to go get an MRI, you know, on Tuesday and it's Monday or whatever. I might just say, Hey, Jenny, just so you know, like there's going to be normal age related changes that are going to show up. So if you see big, scary words, like degenerative disc disease, some disc herniations, right. Uh, maybe like bone spurs, like all of those things relative to your age is all very normal, not correlated to your pain or symptoms. Mm-hmm. That way they're not shocked when they can see the report on like their chart Yeah, and then let the doctor like actually go through their MRI once it's, once it's done. I love that. The, 
you're right. Communicating expectations upfront makes difficult conversations down the road so much easier because they've already been primed for them. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen, but if you've, you generally know what directions it can go in and even just forewarning people of here are all the ways this could turn out and them hearing it once in the beginning and then maybe reminding them as you go through, that is so critical. Yeah. I think that's true in your field and even for strength coaches too, when people are coming, if they come to train (laughs) to lose weight or gain muscle, it's okay, well, we can stick to this plan, but there are all the ways that this could also turn out and you need to be prepared for those. You were giving the example of the testing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if someone tore their ACL and they're not going to pass the test, so they're not Mm -hmm. going to be cleared for sport. In that moment, you're dealing with someone who has physical needs. So there are Mm -hmm. things that need to be done physically for them to pass the test. But then in that moment, you're also dealing with someone who has emotional needs, maybe feelings of guilt or shame, things that what was in my control that I didn't do a good job controlling, meaning I wasn't able to pass these tests. So I'm curious when you have those types of conversations, how do you navigate addressing emotions along with also addressing the logistics of it. Yeah, that's a tricky, that's a tricky one. We half joke with all respect to actual counselors and therapists. Mm -hmm. We joke in our clinic that sometimes we do feel just like a therapist in a gym, you know, like some people just need a vent and talk and cry and, and like, that's okay. And so after these kinds of conversations, you know, you'll have like a few responses. You'll have the kids that are not surprised because they don't do anything outside of PT. So they're like, yeah, well, I haven't really been doing anything anyway. So, you know, I'm not surprised or you'll have the people that aren't doing anything, but think they should be good. <laughs> like it's just okay. magic. It's like this time they're like, Oh, I'm nine months now. So I have to be hundred yeah. percent. So with those kids, I will try to like validate, like, Hey, like, thank you for showing up. Here's the reality though, is if you're only seeing me twice a week, that's like 1% of your time during the week. And if you're not doing stuff in the other 99%, we're not going to see these changes. And so knowing that we have to do more for the next six weeks, just invite you to be more part of the process so that I don't waste your time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the kids that are just kind of like bummed and like brokenhearted, I mean, sometimes it's just like, Hey, do you want like, want to stick around for the rest of the session? Do you want to go home? Do you need to go on a walk? Like, do you want to stay and work out? Like what, what do you feel like you need in this moment? And some kids are just like, ah, yeah, I kind of just want to go home and like kind of sit on this. Yeah. It's like, okay, like get out of here. So just trying to check in and see like, what do they actually need in that moment? How can I come alongside them and support them in that? And then there's the kids that have been doing all the right things. They're showing up, they're working out and the numbers just aren't there. And those are like the hardest for me. Cause I'm mm-hmm. like, oh man, like you're working so hard. I know that you're working out outside of here. You're working with your athletic trainers. It's just not there. Mm-hmm. And so those are probably the hardest part, like from an emotional standpoint for me. Cause I'm like, oh, my babies. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. so close. You're just not quite there. Right. Do you notice that if there are, are people who don't process their emotions around that type of situation that it hinders the progress that they can make? Hmm. I don't know that I've ever thought about that. That's a phenomenal question. I think, you know, I think there's some kids that probably almost like, like disassociate from the bad news and they're just like, okay, like, we'll just keep going. And I don't know if I've noticed that hindering progress. Maybe I like read that as like, cool. Like you're okay with where we're at, I guess. 
And then what, what I was thinking was you can tell when someone is emotional about something, but they're choosing not to talk about it. Mm. Do you, do you leave it up to people, whether it's an athlete or, or someone even older, do you leave it up to them to decide if they want to share those with you? Or are you, is a part of your process to also ask them about the emotional side of the mm. news? Yeah. I will usually always check in and just be like, like, where are you at with this? How do you feel? Like, do you want to talk about this? Do you want to think about it and talk about it next week? Um, and same thing if someone comes in and they're just like, I had a terrible day. It's like, are you like, are you okay? Do you need anything? Do you want to stay here? Do you want to go home? So I would say trying to check in is probably always better than not, unless you already yeah. know the person and they've been like very upfront with like, just give me some space. We can yeah. chat later about this. Like, I'm just mad. Right. I, lo I love though, that you default to asking because I've also heard coaches that have made comments about the athletes that they're working with. Oh, he, he seemed really off today. And I said, well, did you ask him what was going on? Well, no, <laughs> he'll, he'll tell me if he wants to tell me. And I think that's a huge miss. And I mm. don't know. I think some of it is probably time related. Like I don't have time to listen essentially, or mm -hmm. I'm just, I don't know what I'm going to say if they unload on me. And so I'm choosing not to ask. And I can imagine that that's true for some PTs, some ATs and, and strength yeah. coaches as well as the fear of knowing what's on the other side of this question. And if I don't want to know, I'm not going to ask, but I think there's a lot you miss out on in terms of a connection with people if you choose not to ask obvious questions for sure and I know for me like there's definitely days where you know because everyone comes in and they have a little bit you know there's a, a scale of like energy vampires I think yes. like it's like how I view humans and so there's yeah. like some people that I'm like I feel confident that I can handle whatever's on the other side of my my question and then there's other people where some days I'm like I don't have what it takes to like to listen to what, mm -hmm. to what I think might be on the other side, even though that's probably what I should do. So there has definitely been days. I have one girl in my mind that I'm thinking of, mm -hmm. um, who just has just a lot of going on, a lot of trauma for a, a young kid. And you just like, never know what's going to be on the other side. And so there's some days where I'm like, I just can't, like, I just yeah. can't, um, yeah. even though more often than not, I, I will check in with her, yeah. but well, and then there's also I for someone that is an energy vampire, sometimes it doesn't help them to continue to talk about those things either. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It's a man. It's so nuanced. You know, there's not yeah. like a one, a one right way to go about those kind of conversations. No, no. A couple of weeks ago, I listened to the podcast that you did with Chris. Is it Janu? Juno. Juno. Yeah. Thank we you. We love Juno around here. He's good people. Is he, he's a PT. He is a PT. Yep. I should probably know more about him. So Chris, okay. if you hear this, I, it, he was wonderful to listen to. And I really enjoyed the conversation you had with him. You talked a lot in that podcast episode, which you can tell us what episode that was here after I'm done asking this question, but you talked a lot about rapport mm -hmm. and he was talking about how over the 11 years of his experience that he found that building rapport with a client through friendly conversation was really instrumental in getting that client to comply the satisfaction that they had with their experience. And then obviously the outcomes that they were achieving as well. He was specifically mentioning how he spends quite a bit of time 
simply sitting and talking with his patients about things that are completely unrelated to why they're there for the first, he said, up to 30 minutes or so of that session. And I really love that. And I can imagine that a lot of Chris's clients really enjoy that too. But I also know that there are people who aren't interested in that type of approach. They don't want to sit and chit chat if Mm -hmm. they feel like they came there and they want to accomplish something and maybe they feel like socializing is wasting their time. So I'm curious, how do you navigate knowing what approach to take, when to take the comp, maybe the comp competence route where it's just right into here's what we're going to do. Here's more about me. Here's what the plan looks like versus those people that maybe do want to sit and and get to know you as a person and you them before you're getting into the planning aspect of the treatment. Yeah. Love this question. So to like visualize this, we have like a lobby, like up front and then I treat like in the back of our clinic. So to get someone from like the front of the clinic to the back of the clinic, it's probably like a good 10 to 20 seconds. Right. So obviously for most people, we don't just like walking in silence because I don't know them. So we are trying to have some form of conversation between like the lobby and the table where they're going to sit and we're going to like actually chat about what's going on. So I kind of use that time to feel out what, how they are. So there's, you know, some people that come in, boom, super friendly. There are, I already know their grandkids' names, what kind of dogs they have by the time we even get to the table. (laughs) Cool. So we'll just like keep rolling with that. Um, I might just kind of let them talk about whatever they're wanting to talk about until there's kind of like a a moment of silence. And it's like, okay, well, you're here for your knee. Like, tell me more. You know, I I read your note. I kind of know this is going on, but fill me in. And then there's other people, by the time I get to the table, I already know exactly why they're here, that they hate their mattress, like all these other things that are related specifically to their pain. Right. Okay. So for people like that, I won't try to like, then change the conversation to like, well, what do you do for work? And like, what do you, what, what are you doing for vacation? Like, I'll just try to keep rolling with, okay. They want to talk about their knee like right now. And Mm -hmm. so kind of rolling into that. So I will let just that first interaction kind of guide that first part of the evaluation process, um, we have 60 minutes. And so if there's people that get there on time and want to just chat for 20 minutes, I'm fine with that. I can pick up things about their life of like, what is, do they have stairs? Do they have kids? What do they have to do for life, um, yeah. work, those kinds of things. But then there's definitely people that come in that are just like really stressed about what's going on and they just have a bunch of questions. And so it's a lot of education. So I think you're right. Like not everyone wants to come in and just like chat for 30 minutes because for these people, they're using their insurance or they're paying out of pocket. And so they're like, this is not valuable to me. And so you have to figure out what's valuable to that person. And for some people, that's what I can offer them from a knowledge standpoint or an education standpoint, or from a exercise standpoint, most people don't even know what PTs do. (laughs) Yeah. And so if someone is like really hesitant to to trust what I'm saying, as far as like the competence piece of this conversation goes, I will drop, you know, the, I do have a doctorate in physical therapy because most people don't know that it's not something we like flaunt. Um, Mm -hmm. but most people just don't know that. So especially like my guys that are like, Oh, but I lift and I blah, 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 blah. They just don't think I know anything. And I think they think they just hired me like out of high school. (laughs) Cause they're like, did you have to get training for this? (laughs) Like, what do you, but you know, it's just public perception is, is not there. Cause you don't know unless you've been, so mm-hmm. I can't fault the the public by any means. Mm-hmm. So those are a few things that come to mind with, with competence and building that rapport. I like what the example you gave about that 15 second walk, essentially you're letting the client lead 
mm-hmm. where the where the conversation is going to go and understanding or looking for what would be valuable to them. I think this can be a confusing because there's a lot of blanket advice of how to build rapport and trust with clients. And that always lands on things that are unrelated to the technical aspect of what's going on. And so I think then the, the task, the challenge or the task is figuring out what's the balance of those two things, because you, you do need a little bit of both. It's just one might be 10% and the other 90% or vice versa. And I think too often we rely on one certain type of approach or we rely on the approach that we're most comfortable with. And then we lose people along the way. Right. (laughs) Or having the mentality of, well, this is just the way I do it. So if that client doesn't want to do it like that, then, then I don't want to work with them anyway. I think that's really unfortunate because Mm -hmm. we don't, we, I don't, I think it's a really terrible idea to be in a service oriented profession where you say, well, this is the way I do things. And if they don't like it, then we don't work together because there are so many different aspects of our personalities that we can turn up and turn down to be able to connect with all different sorts of people. Totally. Yeah. You have to be able to meet your client where they're at and every client is is a little bit different with their expectations of PT. And I think one of the best questions that I remember hearing, I think when I first went through Web Wealth Initiative back in 2018, Chris Johnson was a mentor and he, are you familiar with Chris Johnson? Yeah. He's like a running PT. Mm-hmm. So he's awesome. Communication is beautiful. His presentations like are mesmerizing to me, but he said he will always ask people like, what is your goal for today? And so for me, that was really helpful because I started hearing like some people were like, well, I just don't understand what my MRI meant. Or I just need to know what I shouldn't be doing in the gym. Or I, I don't know why I'm here. The doctor just sent me here. And so if I can get an idea of like, what do you want out of today? Then I can kind of steer the ship um, mm-hmm. based on that response. Yeah. Even thing to build on that, thinking about what, what would need to be true today for you to want to come back tomorrow or for our mm-hmm. next session. Yeah. Love that. I, in 2016, I blew out my ACL and both meniscus playing volleyball. And I went, I went through four, I think four different PTs and mostly because everyone I went to, there was no connection in terms of understanding who I, who, what I wanted to do. It was just like, Oh, so you did your ACL. Here's the protocol we're going to go through. And I think everyone thinks they're special and I'm thinking, well, I'm not like everybody else. I want, I want this to feel like you've put together something special yeah. for me or even coming in. And I remember one of them, I used to walk a 15 minute walk to get to my okay. appointments. Cause I lived in San Francisco and I walked in and he would always have me go on the Stairmaster for 15 minutes. And I said, I don't want right. to do this. I just yeah. walked here for 15 minutes. Right. I want to get up. to work. I want to yeah. get to work. And to me, so everything you're saying, I think seems really obvious, but in practice, That is not at all the experience I had with any of the PTs that I was working with at that time. And it's just, it's really easy when you have a system just to put everyone through the system, but a system is also, a system doesn't help you really connect with people or at least make little tiny adjustments. That question though, from Chris Johnson, that's a great one. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I think as a patient, right. To like, to take care of patients, you have to make sure that they feel like they have autonomy 
all the time, mm-hmm. right? The minute you take their autonomy, game over. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'll have people that will come in and they're like ACL patients. And so, you know, four months in, they're like, I'm so tired of quad stuff. Like I'm so over doing quad exercises. And so it's like, well, what do you not want to do? And they're like, lunges, please don't make me do lunges. And so in my head, I'm like, well, I have 12 other things to kill your mm-hmm. quad. So mm-hmm. we cannot do lunges. That's totally fine. Yeah. And so trying to give people like a sense of autonomy over like the weight they're using or the rep scheme we use or the exercises we're going to do, or just giving them autonomy. Like Jenny, do you even want to be here today? Cause if you don't, you are welcome to go home and take care of yourself and we can pick up next week. Yeah. And I've had people just go, no, I'm not, I don't want to be here. So I'm like, okay, yeah. then like, don't like go, like go home. Yeah. I don't want to waste your time. I love that because in the short term, I, someone listening to this might think that that's a, that's a, a failure. But what you're doing is you're creating a dynamic where they're more likely to come over the long-term, which is your entire goal is that they need to show up for nine months. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. this, this one session, if they don't want to be here and it doesn't go well, I risk losing out on the next six months of them being inconsistent because they chose to stay when they didn't want to be here when I could just, they felt forced. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about that before. That's really interesting. You're looking at the long term and not at the individual sessions because I can imagine a lot of PTs experience people not completing their protocol. Oh yeah. For every 10 post-ops we see, I bet two of them actually finish their nine months and pass everything and go back to sport. Do you think if more PTs took the approach you're talking about when where you're giving clients more of that autonomy, autonomy to decide how they're participating in that, that th- that number would go up. I think in theory, it might, I think there's so many other factors related to mm-hmm. with our clientele, like getting rides and insurance yeah. and the costs. And so there's a lot of other stuff that plays yeah. into that. But I think if you don't give people autonomy, you will lose people period. Knowing that that's the rate of people that drop off, are there things that you're doing in those first two or three sessions to try and mitigate that aside <laughs> from what we've been talking about? Yeah, I try to, I think I would come back to expectations, right? I want them to know like this, you're going to be here for nine months. Like, I don't want this to be a surprise to you six months into this. of like, oh, I'm still here. Why am I here? I'm over this. Other thing I'll try to tell people is like, hey, if we get five months into this and you feel kind of burnt out, if you want to take a two week rehab holiday, do that. Like it, I'm fine with that. And so I think people just knowing like, Oh, okay. Like yeah. I have the option to walk away from this and come back on my terms. That is something I think that can be helpful. And then for us, there's so many PT places that are like so general, so not individualized. They just repeat the same thing every day for, and like the patients can take themselves through the workout yeah. after a week. Yeah. We try to make everything like every day someone's doing something different with me. Like you're not repeating stuff or you're repeating stuff. It's a little bit different, but it keeps them engaged from a not getting bored standpoint from an exercise library. So there's a few things. Your clients are lucky to have you. No, I hope so. (laughs) In communication in general, stories are a hot topic. Storytelling and well, really because they're a really effective way to communicate because when you tell people stories, people visualize themselves in that story. They, they have a a picture narrative that is happening in their head as you're telling stories, they're sequential. So there's an intrinsic logic to them and they just make information a lot more interesting. Our lives are also just a continuous story. 
so when you work with a patient who has, they're rehabbing something, there is a story that they have about that experience. I'm curious, what role do you think that story plays in someone's rehab experience? And are you, through your communication, trying to influence that, what that story is over the course of working with someone? Mm. These are probably some of my favorite questions to think about because I think the concept of story is something that maybe from a language standpoint, we don't use in PT a ton. But again, I think this is something that I picked up through level up somewhere along the way, but day one consult day, initial evaluation day, once people like sit down on the table, like that's usually my just intro of like, tell me your story. Like, why are you here? You know, and there's definitely those people that are like, well, back in 1980, I, I was in a car wreck and I'm like, okay, you know, and so it takes 30 minutes to get through their story, but that's yeah. okay. Like, I'm like that for them, they just needed to be heard and seen and known throughout their whole story. And like, that's okay. <laughs> and I think that the power of story is that people walk away feeling like I was heard by my healthcare provider, which is so rare. Um, there's a stat that I heard in a course that said on average patients get interrupted within 13 seconds by their doctor. And I was like, not surprised, but also like, man, like we have got to do better. That's and then the other stat was like 70 to 80% of people, if you just like shut up and let people talk without interrupting them, we'll finish within two or three minutes. And I'm like, that's like nothing. It just feels like an eternity when you're like, okay. And we're still talking and we're going and we're going, but in the grand scheme of a 60 minute session or 45 minute session, it's pennies, right? It's nothing. And so the biggest thing I think is like shutting up, letting someone tell the story because they're going to trust you, you know, once you have to tell them either hard truths later on in rehab, or, you know, you almost have to like earn the right to be heard is kind of how I feel with, with patient care sometimes. And so that's a big piece of it. I think as far as like influencing the meaning around their story, that's a huge part of good and bad PT and just like good and bad. I mean, personal training, AT, I mean, any of it, cause we all use language to explain to people what we think is going on to try to make sense of, of their pain and injury. So like in PT world, right. There's like a huge difference between, you know, I just saw an article today that was like, you have rounded shoulders, so you're going to have a rotator cuff tear. I'm like, oh, it's just, that's influencing someone's story in a negative way, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so if you come to me with shoulder pain and you just started working from home, maybe there's some other changes and you're like, man, now my right shoulder hurts. I'm probably not going to tell you it's because you have rounded shoulders because you've probably always had them. There's other life stressors that are going on. Maybe the ergonomics of your desk has changed. Like that is probably more of what maybe triggered some of this. And at the end of the day, we know what to do about it. Like we're going to get you on a good strength program, maybe some mobility stuff just to feel good. That's a lot different and influencing your story, hopefully in a positive way. And one that gives you control over your pain and injury and plan of care versus me saying, well, you have really crappy posture. You know, you're going to just sustain rotator cuff tears, or you're going to have like, you know, you're going to pinch a nerve in your neck just all that stupid stuff that, but, but that's just, also the, that's like the sales model because it's almost like I when know. we're telling people, if I don't identify a problem, they I don't, don't have think a I'm going to, yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. But it's so backwards. It sucks. Because, How do we do that? Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's really self-serving, but in the long run, you're potentially validating something that will eventually be the reason that this person doesn't come back to see you hmm. because they already have this negative idea. Well, this is always going to be here. I'm not going to be able to fix it. I have this and that's that. Right. 
Oh, that's interesting. You're right. We create, we create you got problems me on soapbox. so that we, we can do. sell ourselves. We do. I mean, and we do that. I see that on like the PT business side of things, right? Of like, we will, we'll just like try to create issues for people so that they'll buy our services. And I'm just like, oh, this just, which is funny because the person's there. They already, they already think there's something you don't have to yeah. convince them of anything. You don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're right in front of you. And the listening thing that you, you mentioned about giving people the time to tell their stories, which usually you said the average was two or three minutes mm-hmm. that most people have no one in their life that has listened to them tell this story. And yet this story is probably one that they replay every single time they feel the little pinch, mm-hmm. the pain, they go to take a step. It's just this, they're living this story and nobody's interested in hearing it because a lot yeah. of us aren't bothered by yeah. other people's pain. And you can't see it. Right. So if you can't see it, then it's like, well, okay. Yeah. At least with like a sling, you're like, Oh, you hurt your shoulder. Yeah. But if you, you know, same thing with like concussion, like people just, they forget about it because they can't see it. Yeah, exactly. And then nobody's listening to them. And you might be the only person, the only person that this person will ever be able to share their story. Yeah. We have gotten quite a few patients, me and a few other therapists that I work with, um, that are just, they're just like thankful. They're just like, thank you for actually letting me like share this in full. Cause I haven't got to do that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Oh yeah, no problem. Happy no. to have you, no. um, are you a reader? Yes. Are you a Donna? Donald Miller fan. Have you ever read any of his books? No. So he has a book. I've not read it yet, but it seems like something that you would like maybe the listeners, but it kind of goes along this idea of like stories and why they're important. And it's called hero on a mission. And so he basically goes through like every story has a hero and a villain and a victim and a, maybe like a supporter or something mm-hmm. along that. And I haven't read the book, but it seems really good. And just how we identify with all of those within like the narrative of a story And so I kind of like think about that sometimes when I go to work of just like, there's all these characters at play and like my story is interacting with my patient's story and vice versa. Like they don't operate in silos. And so it is on my book list. If you need, I'm going to add it to add any, I would add that one. Well, even about it. Let's do that. Even after you were saying that it made me think there are some people I would imagine that haven't yet put a narrative to their story. It's just a bunch of facts. Mm Mm-hmm. And I could imagine Mm. that in your role, you also, if you had an understanding of how story works, you might be able to help someone put all of these facts or these experiences that they've had that seem disconnected, Mm -hmm. but that they know influence their story into a narrative that supports where they want to go. 100%. But you'd have to understand how stories work to be able to do that. So everyone should read the book. We'll have a book club about it. I love a good book club. (laughs) Thank you. I haven't, I haven't done one in so long. Maybe I'll do another one. I did one uh, earlier last year. We read, what do we read? I already forgot, but we did it with a few other like PTs, ATs. It was fun. Maybe I'll do one. I can never crash your party. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that. I need to figure out kind of the next few months. What's on my, what's on my plate and see if I can fit that in. All right. I'll, I'll co-do it with you. I'll Can't take wait. some of the loan. Okay. <laughs> As we get toward the end here, I'm curious if you have a specific experience you can share with us where you had a client that that experience with that client was a catalyst to you changing something about the way you communicate or the way you, you do things with them because maybe something didn't go well. Yes. In the beginning. A lot of these. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think the most like straightforward one though, that's going to take the least amount of time to just share. It would be, I had a, a patient, he was like middle-aged dude came in for his initial evaluation. The eval went like pretty good. Um, he was like a little bit, um, had like a little bit of an attitude. So I was just like having a hard time reading him, but otherwise it like went okay. And I don't think I told him at the eval, like, Hey, next time you come in, you're going to be with me or me and one other of my patients. And like, that's it. Cause to me, I'm like, this is amazing. Cause you're not going to be handed off to a tech. Okay. You're not going to be with like three other people all the time. And so I just forget to tell people that, but for him, he thought the evaluation set up the expectation that he was going to be one-on-one all the time. And so he came back like the next week or whatever. And literally within 20 minutes, like he just became like kind of agitated and didn't really like communicate like what was wrong. <laughs> And finally he was like, I didn't know that you're going to have someone else with you. And he just stormed out of the clinic. <laughs> and so I always tell that story to students. Cause they're like, oh my gosh, I just could just never disappoint a patient yeah. and like have a bad review. I'm like, look, it happens even when you're well-intentioned. That is definitely a story that I tell to like, okay, day one, you got to set the expectation of all the things, even if you think that it doesn't need to be said so that yeah. they come in fully know what to expect. And that goes down to even like when you get here, sign in, come back. Cause some patients will come in. And if I haven't told them they can just come back, they'll just like sit up front for 10 minutes and that's on me. Right. Right. Um, so those kind of interactions definitely change how I communicate just like the process of, of our clinic and how it works. And then there's definitely other ones that I could share, but I won't, um, around poor communication with doctors and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. I think it's a really good example. And it brings to mind the value of even think putting it down in a checklist, not mm-hmm. even that you have to use it, but the act of writing down, what are all the things clients need to know to be successful right. after day one. And even if you have that checklist and you go through it, there's a lot of value in that because I think it also shows your clients that you're prepared, your patients right. that you're prepared. Okay. So with fit to speak, my mission has always been to give fitness, sport and health professionals practical steps on improving their communication a lot in communication is very theoretical yeah so I want to know from you what's one thing that you do or a habit that you have from a communication standpoint that you think makes you a better clinician that's anyone listening to this might be able to pick up and do themselves hmm you know I was thinking about this and it's just funny that I'm on this kind of podcast because I feel like communication is like not my that's not my strong suit and so I've enjoy the process of getting to like teach our residents and uh, like mentor students and mentor new grads. Cause you have to be able to communicate. Right. And so it's just, it's funny, like evolution wise, I'm like, I'm better than where I was three years ago, but there's still a lot of work that I want to um, do here. I would say one of the things that I've learned that goes back to this whole expectations thing is that I will be very clear with people on here's what I'm not doing, or here's what I'm not saying, because sometimes I'll say something like I have a girl that has hip pain and it always gets worse when she's stressed and there's nothing from a, a mechanical standpoint or like anatomy standpoint that needs to get fixed. Like she's had the labral repair physically. She is okay, safe to move. And so I'll just try to explain to her, like, I, th- I think the past few weeks, like there's been an increase in stress. And so there's also been an increase in pain. So I would anticipate over the next few weeks, as your stress calms down, I would anticipate your hip pain would also kind of calm down. So let's just kind of monitor things. And I'll follow up conversations like that with like, I'm not saying this is in your head. I'm not saying that your pain is not real. I'm just saying it is influenced by other things other than just your hip joint. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's important. I think 
you know, like when you're doing manual therapy, like as a PT, there's just like so many wild narratives as far as like what we do with our hands. And I'm like a very no fluff PT. And so, you know, I won't go overboard and just like over explain things by any means, but Hey, I'm going to move your shoulder around. Just want to get things moving before we start to exercise and make sure that your shoulder feels safe to move in these positions. Mm -hmm. And then I'll follow that up with like, I'm not breaking up scar tissue. I'm not doing X, Y, or Z. It's the same thing with like the foam roller conversation, right? Of like, I'm not breaking up scar tissue. You don't need to do this from like a reducing your risk of something bad happening, but it's just something that feels good and that's okay. Yeah. So I would say those two things is just setting expectations, but then also explaining what you're not doing to avoid miscommunication down the road. I love it. It's you, it's what you're telling them, what you're doing, what, why, why you're doing it. And then what not, Mm -hmm. what you're not doing, what, Mm -hmm. why, and what not. Yep. That's great. Appreciate it. Shelby, you're fantastic. This was a lot of fun and you shared so many great insights. The one that's really standing out for me is as you mentioned, the expectations, it's telling people upfront or giving them big, a big picture, because essentially then you're priming every conversation that you're going to have with them moving forward. And because they've already been exposed to it, it makes those difficult conversations a little less difficult. Yes, absolutely. Makes them have a little cushion six months down the road. So yeah. can you tell us one more time about the level up initiative? Yeah. Or how people can learn more about it? Yeah. So if you are a a PT, AT, strength coach, massage therapist, if you're in healthcare at all, and you're a student or a clinician or coach or whatever, um, I would start with the Facebook page. There's like probably four or 5,000 people on it. There's always like job things being posted, um, like free journal clubs, that kind of thing. And then if you want more, there's something called Cali plus, which you just pay either like monthly, or I think you can pay annually for a little bit cheaper that has more like specific, like didactic material, like lectures to go through and then some like discussion board stuff. And then beyond that, there's an annual conference. And so every year we just had it in the end of September. So this past two weeks ago, I guess. Um, so it's same thing, multidisciplinary. We focus on like three big topics. So this year we did shoulder. Chris Juno is one of our speakers. We did hip and we did low back pain. And then we approached those three topics from the lens of exercise prescription and communication. And so you kind of get both sides. Cool. It would be right up your alley. You should come sometime. I will. I would love that. That's yeah. fascinating. It's awesome. And can the last thing I'll ask you, you have an awesome podcast. Can you tell oh, everybody thanks. about your podcast? Yeah. Um, podcast. This is also a weird saying podcast is called rethinking rehab, which is super fun. It's a, uh, an idea that I had, I don't know, earlier this year was just thinking about kind of all my favorite conversations that I tend to have with PTs that I've been out longer than I have. And I think one of the most like refreshing things is hearing people talk about, I used to do this and now I do this. And I'm like, Oh, it just gives me the freedom to like change my mind and not have to feel like set in what I think. And so that was kind of the heartbeat and pitched it to my friends at the level up. And they were like, yeah, we'll sponsor it. And so they sent me this mic, which is super nice of them. And they do all the producing and editing. So I literally just have to do the, do the zoom call and post on my social media. Cause I like to, and, um, it's a, it's a fun thing. I try to bring on again, multidisciplinary kind of viewpoints and, and just have real conversations. So. And I love think it. anyone listening to this podcast would absolutely love what you're doing. The com the 
I listened to two or three episodes and every single one I've walked away with something related to communication and the people you've had have had on have been really fascinating and and also they've been so open with sharing their experiences which I always appreciate yeah I'm definitely here for people just being like real and not trying to fake it till you make it like there's life's too short to do that so absolutely (laughs) is Shelby thanks for being here yeah thank you so much I appreciate the invite thanks for listening to the show as this is a podcast about communication we value and welcome your input any feedback you have and questions about how we could make the show even better for you. We'd love it if you click the link in the show notes to do so.